Congressional leaders say they've reached a bipartisan deal to keep the government funded through June, averting the threat of a shutdown. It's Monday, January 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is headed back to Israel. Rockets fired from southern Lebanon are hitting Israel after the killing of a Hamas leader in Beirut. Also this hour, the final push in Iowa with the presidential caucuses there just one week away. Plus the implications for the U.S. from yesterday's election in Bangladesh and this hour. This may sound so obvious, but it's tough because many of us have so many obligations, the job, family. Effective techniques for finding the time to follow through on your New Year's resolutions. In sports, Patriots lose as questions loom about Bill Belichick's future. Sunny and windy today in the 30s. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is going to Israel today as part of a week-long swing through the Middle East. As NPR's Jackie Northam reports from Tel Aviv, this is Blinken's fourth visit to the region since early October. Secretary Blinken arrives in Israel after stops in Turkey, Greece, Jordan, and several Persian Gulf states. On each stop, he delivered the U.S. message about containing the war in Gaza, increasing humanitarian aid into the enclave planning for Gaza's future after the war and urging Israel to ease off its intensive bombing campaign that has killed more than 22,000 Palestinians, according to Gaza's health ministry. Blinken will likely face a tougher audience when he sits down for talks with Israeli leaders on Tuesday, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has sworn to eliminate Hamas. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The National Transportation Safety Board says a missing part of an Alaska Airlines jet fuselage has been found in Oregon. It blew off a plane Friday night. The jet safely returned to the airport in Portland. The NTSB says on three prior flights, a warning light on the jet's pressurization came on. Investigators don't know if these are connected, but the plane was restricted to land and was not allowed to fly over water. A 1-2-3 storm punch is bringing more heavy snow to the U.S. this week. NPR's Amy Hell tells us the risks also include potential tornadoes and flooding. After a weekend storm dropped heavy snow in parts of the Northeast and spawned a tornado in Florida, a second system is expected to bring blizzard conditions to the central U.S. and the chance of tornadoes along the Gulf Coast. As the storm moves to the eastern U.S. where the ground is already saturated, flooding is possible. And a third system is dropping mountain snow in the Pacific Northwest, bringing the chance of more snow and ice later in the week. NPR's Amy Held reporting. Yesterday marked the first anniversary of the beating attack on black motorist Tyree Nichols. He was stopped by Memphis police for an alleged traffic violation and died three days later in the hospital. From member station WKNO, Katie Reardon says Nichols' family held a candlelight vigil for him. Loved ones gathered at the residential intersection where officers violently apprehended Nichols. While his family recalled painful moments from the past year, his stepfather, Rodney Wells, says they've been comforted by an outpouring of support. Tyree said that he was going to be famous one day. And he is. Tyree Nichols' name is known nationwide. That's right. Five officers were fired and charged with second-degree murder for Nichols' death. They also face separate federal charges related to civil rights violations. For NPR News, I'm Katie Reardon in Memphis. On Wall Street and pre-market trading, stock futures are lower. You're listening to NPR. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. We're still feeling the impact of yesterday's snowstorm. There are about 6,600 power outages straight, statewide. The biggest numbers are in Billerica and Tewksbury. A number of schools are either closed or delayed today, and you'll probably have to give your car a good scraping. But it's not all bad news. WBUR Solon Kelleher met up with some people enjoying the snow. A grassy hill in Worcester turned into a snowy slope on Sunday evening. It's been a popular place to sled for decades, and this year it's where newcomer Casey learns the ropes. If you want to go right, lean right. If you want to go left, lean left. And when we're going fast, say, woo Okay. Let me hear you say it. Try it. Ready? Woo-hoo! That's Casey's father, John Short. He sits on the sled with Casey, cradled between his legs. All right, here we go. One, two, three. Casey gave the ride a big thumbs up, even after the long walk back up the hill. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. Governor Healy plans to announce today $375 million in spending cuts. Lawmakers tell the Boston Globe budgets in local and state programs will be cut. It's unclear specifically which programs will be affected. The cuts are due in part to tax collections being behind so far this fiscal year. Weeks ago, Healy said there would not be any spending cuts. A bill that would legalize fentanyl test strips in Massachusetts is moving forward on Beacon Hill. The strips are easy to use and can accurately detect if a drug contains fentanyl, but they're currently classified as drug paraphernalia under state law. State Senator Cynthia Cream says she hopes legalizing the test strips will increase their availability and help prevent overdoses. It would be a wonderful thing for community groups, for drug addiction groups, for young people in colleges, for bartenders that with these drugs being distributed, to have these fentanyl test strips for people to use. The bill won approval in the Senate last week. Now it needs to be taken up by House lawmakers. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. The Patriots ended their season yesterday with a 17-3 loss to the New York Jets at home. There's no word yet on the future of head coach Bill Belichick. The Celtics will visit the Indiana Pacers tonight. Also tonight, the Bruins visit the Colorado. Colorado Avalanche. A high wind watch is in effect through tomorrow for the entire coastline of the state. It'll be sunny today with a high in the mid-30s, clear overnight with temperatures in the 20s, cloudy tomorrow with a rainstorm moving in after sunset. It'll be in the mid-40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Deloitte. Advancing the future takes more than a business angle or a technology angle. It takes both. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash U.S. slash Engineering Advantage. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Congressional leaders have agreed to a deal on how much money their federal government should spend this fiscal year, clearing the way for lawmakers to pass funding legislation before the January 19th deadline. 
Hopefully in time to avoid a shutdown. Yeah, one of my kids asked just yesterday what a government shutdown would mean, and I explained that some people in the federal government would stop working while others might have to work without pay, and that these people do everything from regulate workplace safety to food safety to defending the country. If Congress should approve all the details in time, they will keep working. NPR's Eric McDaniel covers Congress, and he's here with us now to tell us more about all this. Good morning, Eric. Good morning. All right. Tell us what's in the funding agreement. Well, a lot of money, mostly. $886 billion for the military and $773 billion for everything else. But so far, this is basically a a handshake deal, right? Now all they have to do is actually pass the spending bills, which is not going to be an easy feat. But yesterday, Michelle, when I started thinking about what to say during this conversation, there wasn't a plan. There was no plan. So this is a major step forward. And just for some context here, since these are obviously massive numbers, this is essentially a consistent level of annual spending to what President Biden and former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy agreed to in a deal last year, a deal that ultimately helped to doom McCarthy, who went on to become the first Speaker of the House, ousted in a vote by his colleagues. And now his replacement, Republican Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, just agreed to essentially the same thing, but now with some little concessions, including a faster timeline on already agreed to cuts to the IRS and some unspent COVID money returned back to the government. And what are you hearing about reaction? Well, as you might imagine, some Republicans in the House are really mad. This is the anti-compromise set of folks in the party, folks like the House Freedom Caucus and their allies. They wanted to leverage the looming government funding deadline on January 19th to extract big spending cuts and policy concessions on everything from abortion access to building a wall on the U.S. southern border. This was always a pretty big long shot that they'd be able to achieve that. It wouldn't get through the Democratic-controlled Senate or be signed by President Biden, but it could have ended up in a government shutdown like we talked about that would have been really hard on millions of people. That's still a possibility, but it's less likely now. It's still going to be hard to get a deal on 12 federal spending bills, but let's put it this way. They've agreed on the size of the House. Now they just have to come up with the blueprints and build the thing. Look, the last time we talked, Eric, they were talking about working on aid to Israel, aid to Ukraine, Where does that stand? So this is a separate process for the most part. There was some talk in Republican circles about trying to tie immigration reform to government funding. But for the most part, this is separate. They're calling it a big national security bill. So that's Ukraine, Israel, maybe some money for Taiwan and U.S. immigration policy, too. So Republicans and Democrats for weeks in the Senate have been trying to figure out a way to address that because no one involved thinks that the immigration status quo is good. A record 10,000 some people are presenting themselves to border protection agencies many days, often making legal requests for asylum. Democrats want to handle that by putting more resources toward it, while Republicans want to curb who's allowed to request asylum in the first place and find other ways to limit the number of people arriving. And there's a very different appetite for a deal in the Senate than in the House. Hmm. Republicans in the House just got back from a trip to the U.S. southern border and could end up trying to impeach Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, a man who's personally involved with negotiating just down the hall with their counterparts in the Senate. So right now, at least, I think it's fair to say that government funding is more on track than foreign aid or immigration reform. That is NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel. Eric, thank you so much. Thank you. We have a glimpse now of the low-level war along Israel's northern border. If you look on a map far away from Gaza, you see a finger of Israel that pokes upward alongside Lebanon. Israel's army has been exchanging fire for months with Hezbollah across the Lebanese border. 
Hezbollah is an ally of Hamas. Recent violence in Lebanon, the killing of a Hamas leader who was staying there, has added to concerns that the fighting on the border could grow more intense. NPR's Lauren Freyer is on that border, up in that far northern part of Israel. Hi there, Lauren. Hi, Steve. Where exactly are you there? I'm at a roadside gas station that's absolutely swarming with Israeli soldiers. In front of me is a hill where the other side of the hill is Lebanon, about two miles as the crow flies. The Israeli military has closed roads beyond the point where I'm standing. It says it struck a bunch of targets on the other side of this border overnight, including what it calls a Hezbollah military compound. In the past day that I've been here, there have been warplanes buzzing overhead, booms of outgoing weaponry on the Israeli side, air raid sirens on this side. In the town of Kiryat Shmona, near here, residential neighborhoods have been hit by rockets, presumably fired by Hezbollah. I saw big gaping holes in the sides of houses. But compared to the south of Israel and to Gaza, certainly, there have been few casualties here because the area has been largely evacuated of civilians. Tens of thousands of people have relocated from their neighborhoods here to hotels farther south in Israel that have been paid for by the Israeli government. But there is no mandatory evacuation on the Lebanese side of this border, and there have been a lot of casualties from Israeli strikes there. Lauren, I just want to note that there has been fire across this border since October. What gives a sense now that things could get worse? There's fear of just an all-out ground invasion from either side. The area is swarming with soldiers. There are way more soldiers than civilians here. I talked to an Israeli officer, a second lieutenant, who says the mood is really jumpy. Like, some of his troops are eager for action, but he's cognizant that, you know, one overstep, one shot fired, and this could be a new front and a wider regional war. Here is a scene I collected last night in the nearby town of Kiryat Shmona. Let's have a listen. With the town around it mostly evacuated and warplanes buzzing overhead, this shawarma restaurant about a mile from the Lebanon border is doing a surprisingly swift trade. We have uh, the same routine, but uh, more soldiers, less civilians. Toby Aboutbul, a former Israeli soldier himself, runs this place with his dad. We will not let the uh, soldiers stay hungry, you understand? They keep us safe. While Israel withdraws thousands of soldiers from Gaza, deployments northward to guard the Lebanon border are keeping this man in business. Most civilians evacuated this region three months ago, fearing what happened in the south with Hamas militants crossing the border from Gaza might happen here, too, with Hezbollah militants crossing from Lebanon. There has been no major ground invasion so far, but near daily rocket fire from Hezbollah. Okay, so a rocket came over this hill. From this way, yes. Lebanon is in the other side of this yeah, hill. Yeah. Came over here and hit this house right here. Second floor, of three foot wide hole in the side of the house. Wow, the window is still intact. That's incredible. Israeli tanks, artillery, and airstrikes have hit southern Lebanon in response. And last week, it's believed to have reached even farther into Lebanon with an airstrike in Beirut that killed a top Hamas leader. Israeli officials have not explicitly claimed responsibility for that attack, but it's prompted a barrage of additional rocket fire from Hezbollah. Politicians and, I don't know, society, everybody's saying that uh, Nasrallah is 
making speeches and making... David Itkin is the only member of his family who did not evacuate his hometown of Kiryat Shmone near the border. He stayed behind to work overtime in a factory, but he's also been glued to speeches on TV. He referred there to Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, who has vowed to respond to last week's assassination in Beirut, quote, on the battlefield, which may be right here. The Israeli military's chief of staff, Herzi Halevi, said Sunday that it's his duty to make this border region safe for Israelis. We'll do that with rising pressure, he said, or we will do that with another war. Air raids are so common along this border that Cecilia el just moved into the bomb shelter under her apartment building. So it's an underground bunker with a massive, thick, like, metal door that kind of has a big bolt in it and six bunk beds, a blanket on the floor for the dogs, and this is your home for three months. I fell and broke my teeth rushing downstairs in some of the early air raids, she says. I was so scared. So now I'm just living down here, she says, underground. El Ausi refuses to evacuate, no matter what, even with the booms of Israeli weaponry echoing behind her apartment block. Her neighbor has a different take, though. Oz Vaknin has already evacuated. He's staying with family farther south, but he came back to grab some stuff. And when he comes home, he says he feels... Like pain, uh, because what happened in my city. I feel lonely, not uh, feel good, <laughs> not feel uh, like home. He's got two months left on his lease here. Then he's decided to move away for good. What would it take for him not to uproot his life? If the wall with uh, Nasrallah and Hezbollah, it's okay. over, uh, maybe. But uh, this is not a uh, begin. <laughs> it hasn't even begun yet. No. The kind of war he's talking about, a full ground war between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon, it's happened before, most recently in 2006. And it's what everyone here worries may happen again. NPR's Lauren Freyer talking with Israelis who've evacuated and who are living underground. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading to the region. And Lauren, what can he do? He's got a lot on his plate. He's been meeting regional leaders trying to drum up support for the rebuilding of Gaza after the war there ends. When he lands here in Israel, he's expected to push Israeli leaders to curtail their widespread bombing of Gaza. There are signs that may actually already be happening. The Israeli defense minister has said with the withdrawal of thousands of Israeli troops from Gaza, the military is refocusing on more targeted special ops missions there. There are some Israeli military supply trucks rolling past behind me. I don't know if you can hear that. I can. Um, Blinken has is worried about this border where I am. He says he's worried this conflict could, quote, metastasize and that a new front could kick off right here. NPR's Lauren Freyer in northern Israel. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Monday with 90.9 WBOR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Republican presidential candidates are making closing arguments to voters ahead of next Monday's Iowa caucuses, with Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley still running far behind Donald Trump. It's 719. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include Vertex, 
working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at VRTX.com. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Protesters are camping out on a Maui beach to demand Hawaii's governor do more to provide long-term housing for families displaced by fire. It's getting pretty hard. A lot of them are paying mortgages on ash and rubble. Five months after the Maui fires, tourists have returned, but residents are still living in hotels. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Dorchester native actor Io Debery is now a Golden Globe winner. She won the award last night for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy TV Series for her role on The Bear. In her acceptance speech last night, she was clearly excited as she thanked a lot of people. Everybody at The Bear, that's my family. I love you guys so much. It's an honor to work with you and grow alongside you. Um, oh my gosh, the actresses I was nominated alongside also. Ah, um... And uh, my real family also, I love you guys too. Uh, <laughs> that audio is courtesy of CBS. Debris is also nominated for an Emmy Award. Sunny with a high in the mid-30s today, and there's a high wind watch in effect for coastal areas, mostly clear and a low in the mid-20s tonight. Tomorrow, increasing clouds and a high in the mid-20s. There's a chance of rain beginning in the late afternoon and lasting through Wednesday morning. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Fadel. If you made a New Year's resolution last week, but you're struggling to get started or already wavering, it could be that you need to refine your goal and nail down a plan on how to get there. NPR's Allison Aubrey is here to walk us through an evidence-based technique that may help you break through. Hi, Allison. Good morning, Layla. Okay, so you're going to tell us how to make this happen because it's really hard to stick with (laughs) these resolutions. Why is it so difficult? Yeah, well, one obstacle is time. When we want to do something new, whether it's get fit, start a new project, you fill in the blank, we have to make time for it. This may sound so obvious, but it's tough because many of us have so many obligations, the job, family. I spoke to Oliver Berkman. He wrote a book called 4,000 Weeks. And I think his title is really a reality check on our delusional relationship with time. We think we have a lot of it, but over a lifetime, we have only about 4,000 weeks total, if that's if you live the average lifespan. So if you're 40, you got about 2,000 weeks left. That's it. Wait, 2,000 weeks left? That sounds much (laughs) shorter than I understood. I mean, I guess that's right. Each year is just 52 weeks, so really not a lot of time. 
That's right. We blink. It'll be July 4th. So if you want to accomplish something this year, you have to stop being the person who says yes to everything and you have to say no to more things. Oliver Berkman told me he learned this lesson after he tried to be a highly efficient person and get down to zero unopened emails in his inbox every day. So as soon as an email came in, he'd respond. And of course, what happens then is that you just get loads more email because you reply to people more quickly and then they reply to you and you've got to reply to their replies and it goes on forever and you get a reputation as being responsive on email so more people email you. So in other words, the effort to get on top of email, to lighten the burden of email in your life, has the effect of making it heavier. So the email is sort of a metaphor for the conveyor belt of demands and tasks that come our way all the time. And Berkman says we should not kid ourselves into thinking that we can become faster and more efficient, that we could be all things to all people and try to achieve our goals at the same time. Okay, so do less. Say no. I would love to do that. But at work <sighs> and at home, I mean, it just feels impossible sometimes. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly things we must do. I mean, neither of our editors would be happy if we'd said, oh, don't think we have time for morning edition this morning, right? <laughs> Can't say <laughs> no available. to the kids. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, but there is a realistic way to set goals and move towards accomplishing a goal once you've gotten a handle on this finite amount of time you have. A few years ago, I stumbled on a technique called SMART goals, which is this evidence-based approach used in workplaces, used by therapists, coaches. I've actually used it in my own life. Now, SMART is an acronym, and the S stands for specific. So you've got to start out by being able to articulate in just a few words or a sentence what you want to accomplish this year. Do you have one in mind? I mean, I have the same one every year where I'm going to work out every day and I haven't worked out. Okay. Well, the M in SMART stands for measurable. How are you going to track that? You want to work out? You got to monitor your progress. Mm -hmm. The research shows that when you monitor progress towards a goal, you're more likely to succeed. So if you want to train for a race, tally your mileage. If you're learning to play the piano, log your practice. If you aim to eat better, journal your meals. Tracking provides us with the kind of the long view of our progress, and it helps us reflect on how far we've come or how far we still have to go. Okay, so M for measure. Makes sense. You make progress that way. So SMART, S-M-A-R-T, that means A is next. What does the A stand for? Achievable. Is your goal actually doable? That's the question you're asking yourself. And one way to determine this is to break it down into smaller pieces. Write those building blocks into a plan or on a calendar. I did this when I trained for a marathon years ago with a bunch of other first timers. We used a method where you calculate how long it's going to take to build up to 26 miles based on your current distances. And over the course of several months, you add a mile, then another mile. It made a goal that seemed daunting at first actually doable, breaking it down into smaller chunks. Okay, so of course, a big goal like a marathon, I mean, you have to have commitment to do that. Is that important? Yes, exactly. Uh, this is my favorite part of the SMART goal approach. The R in SMART is for relevant. And this means you're asking yourself kind of the why behind your goal. One way to test the relevancy of your goals is to ask what's known as the five whys. I spoke to a therapist, Keisha Mora Medina, who uses this with some of her clients. It puts you in a place to explore deeper motivations and intentions around your goal. So if your goal is, I want to work out more, the first why would be, why do I want to work out more? And then you ask, why is it important to me? Well, it's to improve my fitness and physical health. Why is improving my physical and fitness health so important? 
And often the answer to that is, you know, I want to get stronger or more fit so I can have quality time with the important people in my life, yeah. my kids, or be able to pick up my grandkids. So your goals should reflect your values. And the final step of this technique, Layla, the T in SMART is for time or time bound, which really takes us back to where we started. In order to achieve a goal, you need a deadline and you need the time to do it because time really is our most precious resource. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that you've used this SMART goal approach. Has it helped? Well, we'll see. Uh, it led me to the realization that I want to focus in on one reporting project this year. I've tossed aside a lot of other interests to kind of drill down into the new science of longevity and aging well. My project is nominally called How to Thrive as You Age and perhaps motivated by my acceptance of that 4,000 week concept. We are yeah. all here for a very finite time. So I want listeners and readers to get involved. If you want to share your secrets, your pearls of wisdom, or if you have questions about aging well, we'll have a digital post up on NPR.org so you can weigh in. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. I have so many questions. <laughs> NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thanks, Allison. Thank you, Layla. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. Tomorrow night, Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her State of the City address. Last year, she laid out goals for growing Boston's population and controlling soaring housing costs. Listen live at 7 tomorrow on 90.9 WBUR as she looks back and lays out her vision for the year ahead. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. The National Rifle Association's leader of three decades is stepping down days before the start of the organization's civil trial in New York for corruption. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Center for Professional Education Certificates in Real Estate Studies. Stay current and competitive in commercial real estate facilities management and real estate finance. Learn more at an information webinar Tuesday, January 9th at 2 p.m. Sign up at bu.edu professional. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The National Transportation Safety Board says investigators have recovered a key missing component from an Alaska Airlines jet that was forced to make an emergency landing last week. A plug door, which tore off the left side of the plane in midair, was found in the backyard of a suburban home. NTSB Chair Jennifer Homedy applauded the efforts of the flight crew. The actions of the crew members, the actions of the flight attendants were really heroic. The plane was forced to make an emergency landing shortly after taking off from Portland, Oregon. All 171 passengers and six crew on board were able to safely evacuate. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is facing bipartisan criticism for failing to publicly disclose complications he suffered after undergoing an elective surgery. NPR's Tom Bowman reports Austin kept his hospitalization quiet from the White House and members of Congress for days. 
You would think that uh, Biden's principal military advisor in this time of war in the Middle East and possible continued military action by U.S. forces against militant groups in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen would have picked up the phone and told officials, at least the president. That's NPR's Tom Bowman reporting. This is NPR News in Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Senator Elizabeth Warren says she respects the decision by Claudine Gay to step down as president of Harvard, but Warren says she wishes Gay had stayed on. The former Harvard law professor told WCVB's On the Record that she disagreed with some of Gay's congressional testimony about dealing with anti-Semitism on campus. But Warren accused conservative activists of pressuring Gay out. The billionaires and the right-wing extremists who really drove this, who really wanted to make this a huge event, these aren't people who care about our academic institutions and how to make them stronger and more independent. These are people who have a political agenda. Warren did not extensively comment on the plagiarism accusations against gay. A number of cities will inaugurate their mayors today. In Quincy, Mayor Tom Koch will be sworn in for his eighth term. He'll become the city's longest-serving mayor. In Waltham, Mayor Jeanette McCarthy will swear in for her sixth term. And in Melrose, Jennifer Gregoritis will begin her first term. The ashes of a Woburn man will be sent into space today. The remains of Francis Gillis are part of a deep space flight launch. Relatives of Gillis tell the Boston Herald he wanted his remains to be part of this particular flight. Other DNA samples, as well as some greetings and messages, will also be on board the flight. It's 7.33. WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KF.org. The Patriots ended a dismal season yesterday with a loss at home in the snow. They fell to the New York Jets 17-3. New England finished the season with a 4-13 record and questions over whether it was the final game for head coach Bill Belichick. Here's what he had to say after the game. As far as the future goes, I'll sit down with Robert, as I do every year at some point at the end of the season, and you know we'll talk about things, as we always do. I'm sure that'll happen. Um, but that's really about all I have to say about that right now. Robert there refers to Patriots owner Robert Kraft. The NFL playoffs without the Pats begin on Saturday. The Bruins are out west tonight to play the Colorado Avalanche. The Celtics will visit the Indiana Pacers. Clear skies today. Highs will be in the mid-30s. It'll be windy, and there's a high wind watch in effect for coastal areas. Skies stay mostly clear tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-20s. Clouds move in throughout the day tomorrow, and there's a chance of rain in the late afternoon. Highs will be in the mid-40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. You're at WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Workday, with AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Next week, Iowa Republicans vote on presidential candidates. Clay Masters has been listening to their closing arguments, as he has for years, and he's on the line. Clay, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What are you hearing? Well, let's start with Ron DeSantis, who is betting it all on Iowa. The Florida governor says Donald Trump thinks he's entitled to Iowans' vote. Uh, DeSantis argues he's actually campaigning in all of Iowa's 99 counties instead of popping in for some larger events and then leaving. DeSantis talks a lot about what he sees as his accomplishments in Florida. Then you have Nikki Haley, who has not spent as much time in Iowa as DeSantis, but she's been appearing here more as of late. The former South Carolina governor and one-time UN ambassador has been talking about Trump, too, as well, the front-runner in all this 2023 into 2024 cycle. Sure. Uh, I had the chance to press her recently in an interview on Iowa Public Radio about Trump's positive comments about authoritarian leaders and if they are a threat to American democracy. Haley wouldn't say that explicitly, but she did say the U.S. won't survive a second term for Trump. And as for Trump, he was in Iowa just this weekend relitigating the 2020 election, uh, falsely saying it was rigged, of course. Uh, He's only been ramping up that rhetoric in the last few days. Why? Well, he thinks it'll help drive turnout, Steve. I mean, at at these rallies, when I speak to people, you know, there was this Washington Post poll that showed three years after the January 6th attack, the Republicans are more sympathetic to those who stormed the U.S. Capitol and they absolve Trump of responsibility. Uh, Whenever he's indicted or there's a gag order put in place throughout the cycle, uh, people that I've talked to in these crowds coming to see Trump only feel more passion about supporting him. So what does the final week look like before the voting begins? Well, so there's a lot at stake for Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. They'll both be barnstorming the state. They'll appear at a CNN debate in Des Moines on Wednesday. Uh, Donald Trump will also be in Iowa that day, but for a separate Fox News town hall. Uh, Trump will also be tied up in courtrooms this week, so that'll keep him out of Iowa, uh, uh, you know, every day. On Tuesday, he'll be in Washington, D.C. for a hearing on whether he was whether he has presidential immunity in the federal election subversion case. And then on Thursday, uh, the judge in Trump's New York civil fraud trial will hear closing arguments. And I should I should note that there are other candidates still in the running uh, for the Iowa caucuses, uh, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson and then uh, businessman Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, he's been spending a lot of time in Iowa recently. I, I want to note, and many of our listeners will know this, that Clay has covered the last three Iowa caucuses going back to 2016. You've interviewed many of the candidates because public radio is huge in Iowa. And now you're moving on to Minnesota Public Radio, but you've covered these three cycles the whole time of Donald Trump. What changes have you seen in the Republican Party? Well, in a lot of ways, the 2024 cycle had kind of started out to look a lot like caucus cycles of the past, where you had a crowded field taking shape and, you know, you were kind of watching uh, who was going to rise in the polls. But there really hasn't been the kind of rise that you've seen in the past. And Trump hasn't been playing the traditional Iowa game, but but he didn't eight years ago. And the Republican turnout record for the caucuses was in 2016 when 186,000 voters showed up. That was only about 25 percent of registered Republicans. And, you know, it's really drawing a lot of questions as to, you know, how much strength the Iowa caucuses will have in moving on into the future. Of course, Trump hasn't always won in Iowa. Clay, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Clay Masters, once of Iowa Public Radio, now on his first day at Minnesota Public Radio.
Later this month, the state of Alabama plans to execute a man with nitrogen gas. If the execution goes forward as planned on January 25th, it will be the first time that method will be used in a death chamber in the U.S. And it is also the second time Alabama will try to execute Kenneth Smith over a murder-for-hire plot in 1988. NPR's Kiara Eisner spoke with Smith about how he is preparing for what comes next. When Kenny Smith called me from the William C. Holman Correctional Facility in Atmore, Alabama, we only had 15 minutes, and it was sometimes hard to hear him over the crackly line. But he had a lot to share about his experience when the state tried and failed to execute him by lethal injection a year and a half ago. I was strapped down, couldn't catch my breath. I was shaking like a leaf. I was absolutely alone in a room full of people, and not a one of them tried to help me at all. And I was crying out for help. It was a month or so before I really started to come back to myself. Only two people living in the United States today can say they've been through an execution and survived. Alabama stopped the execution after four hours because the workers weren't able to successfully insert a needle into Smith's veins. He said that has made waiting for this upcoming execution in January by nitrogen gas even more difficult. I'm still carrying the trauma from the last time. I'm being treated for PTSD, and I, I struggle daily. So when I got this date, my level of anxiety this time was not even close to what I faced last time. Mm. Everybody is telling me that I'm going to suffer. So I'm absolutely terrified. So Alabama has said that they're doing things differently this time. You know, they did this whole review of the process last year. Do you feel like they're doing things differently than last time? Have they fitted you for the mask? Are they telling you what's going on? Oh, no, they don't tell me nothing. I won't know if things are different or not until um, I actually get around there. Yeah, I don't know. They put out a, what was it, a one-page statement about the review? Mm-hmm. Who, who reviewed it? They reviewed her damn self that the Fox Garden Hen House. And do you know, is it going to be the same people who were with you last time? Oh, of course. Oh, of course, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You have one minute left. Yeah, we all, know who, we all know who they are. You know, I know you haven't been talking very much with the public. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to ask you if there's something that you want people to know that, that they don't know about what you're going through. Yes, ma'am. It's, it's the mental trauma side of all of this. I've been doing time for 35 years now, and I've tried to place myself in my brother's shoes when they're around the corner and going through this, but nothing prepares you for it. The anxiety and stuff starts building before you ever get your date, you know, as you're approaching that time, and the anxiety starts to build. And, yeah, there is a mental trauma there that I never realized until I went through that. Smith has filed a legal challenge against the state for attempting to put him to death a second time, partly because of that trauma. His lawyers argued it's unconstitutional to allow Alabama officials to try to execute him again after they already did it once and caused him physical and psychological pain. Waiting for them to do it again is a form of torture, Smith believes, and torture is not permitted by law. The court's decision is expected soon. I reached out to the Alabama Department of Corrections to confirm that the execution workers this time would be the same as the last, and the state didn't respond. Kiara Eisner, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBMR's Morning Edition, the FAA has grounded all Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes after a blowout on an Alaska Airlines flight over Oregon. The city of Worcester says the parking ban in effect because of yesterday's storm will be lifted at 9 this morning. The National Weather Service reports Worcester got more than 15 inches of snow. Mid-30s and sunny today. It'll be windy and there's a high wind watch in effect for coastal areas that may see gusts up to 60 miles per hour. Mid-20s tonight and skies will be mostly clear. Tomorrow it grows increasingly overcast, leading to a chance of rain beginning around late afternoon. Temperatures will be in the mid-40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Boston-based Vertex says it's pausing trials on its cell therapy for type 1 diabetes. The company says two patients in the trial died, but their deaths were not related to the drug. Vertex leaders say they hope to restart the trials after an independent review. Two new furniture stores are planned for Somerville's Assembly Row. It'll be the first Boston-area location for the Raymore and Flanagan chain. There will also be a new Bob's Discount Furniture added to the area. No opening dates have been set. Boston-based business owner and philanthropist Joe O'Donnell has died. He owned a stadium concessions business, a venture capital firm, ski areas, and more. He also raised more than half a billion dollars for cystic fibrosis research after his 12-year-old son died from the genetic disorder. Joe O'Donnell died yesterday. He was 79 years old. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food, from employee meal plans to on-site staffing. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. The Prime Minister of Bangladesh has been elected for a fourth successive term in voting that was marred by a boycott and low turnout. It's the first of a series of elections that are expected to take place in South Asia this year. NPR's Dia Khadid covers South Asia from her base in Mumbai with a preview and the results from Bangladesh. Good morning. Actually, good afternoon where you are. Good morning to you, Michelle. Let's start with Bangladesh. I take it the result is not a surprise. Not a surprise. In the run-up to the elections, the main opposition party had faced a wide-ranging crackdown that had constrained its top leadership. It called for a boycott of elections and a two-day strike over the weekend. And that probably helps explain the low turnout, which at best was around 40%. And you do get the sense that people didn't see the point of voting. The Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina, has been in power now for 15 years. And observers say previous elections were also problematic. One analyst who was watching this election is Sudanan Dume. He is a fellow with the American Enterprise Institute. I think what seems to be happening in Bangladesh is going from being essentially a multi-party democracy to becoming more of a one-party state. And it's dominated by one leader, Sheikh Hasina. 
Sheikh Hasina Huduma says is already the world's longest serving female head of government. And I take it there were concerns going into this election, including from the U.S. about the legitimacy of the process there. Yeah, there were concerns and Washington has in fact taken a keen interest in these elections. Ahead of the polls, the State Department announced visa restrictions on individuals who they said were undermining democracy in Bangladesh that largely impacted members of security forces that human rights researchers uh, said were involved in abuses against opponents. But the US hasn't gone further than that so far. And one reason for that may be China. Michael Kugelman is the director of the South Asia Institute at the Wilson Center. You know, here, U.S. officials refer to Bangladesh as a strategic partner. And I think that's because of how it is perceived. It sits you know, right in the middle of the Indian Ocean region there in the Indo-Pacific. It has become a major battlefield for great power competition. So China, for example, has spent billions on infrastructure in Bangladesh as part of its Belt and Road Initiative. They've helped build bridges, highways and even an airport. So China, clearly a player in Bangladesh, and critics are saying it's turning into a one-party state. But has there been anything positive about Sheikh Hasina's 15 years of rule that her supporters would point to? Of course. Bangladesh under Sheikh Hasina is, by South Asian standards, a standout success story. Islamic militancy is being curbed. The country's taken in around a million Rohingya refugees. Her government has pulled up income levels, and it, she's transformed Bangladesh into one of the world's biggest clothing exporters. But right now, the economy is in the doldrums and inflation is biting. And if that continues, there could be more popular discontent and the prime minister and her party know it. You mentioned that there are a number of elections expected in South Asia this year. Could you just give us a quick preview of what we might be seeing? South Asia is going to see a series of elections this year. It's Bangladesh, next Bhutan, next Pakistan and next India. And analysts say there's a trend, at least among the big three, Bangladesh, Pakistan and India, of eroding democratic norms. These countries are quite different from each other. They all have their own internal dynamics. But we are in a place in, in 2024 where there is a real lively concern about the fate of democracy. And that's what human rights researchers are telling me as they look at this region as a whole. That is NPR's Dia Hadid in Mumbai. Dia, thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. This is NPR News. It's a Monday morning on WBUR. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we'll look at the role Congress may play in deciding whether former President Trump will appear on ballots in Colorado and Maine. It's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, with free admission on MLK Day. Enjoy family-friendly films that celebrate black stories, art making, and more. ICABoston.org. And Explo, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explo.org slash summer. Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash legacy. The people who entertain us, the world in all its wonder, the ideas that spark creativity, joy and inspiration every day on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Congressional leaders say they've reached a bipartisan agreement to keep the government funded through June and avoid a shutdown. 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken is headed back to Israel this week, and a U.S. lunar lander is headed to the moon for the first time in over 50 years from a company that hopes to be the first private business to successfully land on the moon. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 180 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. WelchForbes.com. Sunny and mid-30s today. It'll be windy and the state's coastal areas are under a high wind watch. Mostly clear in mid-20s tonight, increasingly cloudy tomorrow in the mid-40s. There's a chance of showers beginning in the late afternoon. It's 28 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The man who led the National Rifle Association for more than 30 years is stepping down. Wayne LaPierre departs just as testimony is about to start in a civil trial over alleged mismanagement and corruption at the NRA. So what's his legacy? We've called up Mike Spees, a senior staff writer at The Trace, which is a nonprofit media outlet for gun-related news. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Steve. Wow, I'm just reflecting on this. Wayne LaPierre has been a fixture at the NRA and on television for about all the time that I've been a journalist. Presidents change, issues change, even the century changed, and he was still there. So what does it mean that he's leaving? It means that the organization no longer has its face, especially at a time when it has been a, become a hollowed-out shell of its former self. Without him there, there is no recognizable aspect of the organization. I'm just thinking of the consistency with which he said the same thing, regardless of the news. There would be a mass shooting somewhere, and Wayne LaPierre would say essentially the same thing, insisting on his view of the Second Amendment, which is by no means universally held, uh, insisting on the same solutions or lack of solutions every single time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what's interesting is you point out that he just said the same thing over and over again, and I think it's it's key to remind people that, in some respects, he was a bit of an automaton uh, who was just uh, sort of being talked through by the organization's longtime public relations firm that effectively created his image and the persona that the American people interacted with for so long. Now, with that said, this has been a very influential, very powerful, very well-known organization. How did it evolve under his many years of leadership? Well, it was sort of the early in its willingness to exploit fear and paranoia uh, on, a, on a mass scale, in its willingness to divide people, and it did that incredibly successfully. And its PR firm that I mentioned devised some of the most creative and consequential media campaigns that I can think of from a political committee. And that, you know, stems going back to the I, I Am the NRA campaign, which everybody remembers, to Freedom's Safest Place. Um, it was built on agitprop and creating a hyper-partisan environment that relied on a kind of like tribalism that under him, the organization really built out. I'm thinking about what gave this organization power, and we should note that. Didn't this organization have millions of members who paid regular dues, which was a regular stream of income that gave the group great influence? It did. I mean, its willingness to pay in elections definitely was significant uh, and grew more significant as the years went on. But it's not the only thing. I mean, it did, it did matter, 
But what also mattered was that the Republican Party over time realized there was some value in giving the NRA power. Uh, as you may know, some of the organization's board members were also sitting members of Congress. And it was a seen getting an A from the organization, especially in the earlier days, was seen as a way to distinguish yourself in a primary as well as in a general election. Oh, when you talk about an A, of course, they grade lawmakers on their votes, as a lot of organizations do, which gives them a certain amount of influence. But you said it was seen as something powerful. What has caused the NRA's diminishment in the last few years? Well, once uh, we originally broke the stories about widespread self-dealing and mismanagement at the organization, uh, that led to a host of lawsuits, including with the attorney general. Um, that also resulted in the other more important executives at the organization, especially the man who led uh, the group's lobbying wing, Chris Cox, uh, to be forced out. Um, as that sort of stuff started to happen and the revelations began to come out about Wayne's self-dealing and other other issues, uh, members started to drop off and the organization's brand became toxic. And when you mentioned the attorney general, I guess we should say it's the attorney general of New York, which is now suing the NRA, trying to effectively disband the organization. Mr. Spees, thanks so much for your insights. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. That's senior staff writer Mike Spees of The Trace. It's been a week since a series of powerful earthquakes shook Japan's west coast. More than 125 people died and more than 100 people are still missing. The quake came less than a month after a volcanic eruption pushed molten lava through parts of southwestern Iceland. Lava and smoke spewing into the air. It is not unexpected after several weeks of seismic activity in the area. Yeah, from Iceland to Italy, to the Philippines, to Afghanistan, to Chile, to Indonesia. We heard a lot about seismic activity in the past year. Was there really more? No, there's not really been a change in frequency in earthquakes and or volcanic eruptions. The president of the Geological Society of America, Chuck Bailey, says Iceland and Japan were spectacular photogenic events. They appeared all over social media, and that made it feel like more is going on. But if you step back out and looked at it over the course of a year or a year and a half, my suspicion is that the seismicity as well as the uh, number of volcanoes that are erupting will effectively end up being about on pace with what normally our planet does. Seismicity. Magnus Tumi Goldmason is a geophysics professor at the University of Iceland and also an Icelander. Over the last years or decades, we are seeing the same trend as we have seen over the past centuries. Which means, according to the National Earthquake Information Center, about 20,000 quakes worldwide each year, with no evidence that the frequency of seismic activity has changed. The biggest eruptions memory in the United States was the Mount St. Helens eruption of 1980. Then we had Pinatubo eruption in 1991. And then we had the rather spectacular Hunga Tonga event. These events do not happen very frequently. What has changed, according to the experts, is the increase in climate disasters fueled by human-caused climate change. One of those experts is volcanologist Marco Brenna at the University of Otago in New Zealand. That increasing recurrence of these weather events 
might be subconsciously increasing natural disasters like earthquakes and volcanoes, but it's totally different systems. So while seismic activity can affect weather and generate tsunamis, there is a risk of conflating seismic activity with the general increase in climate events. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. A windy day today, and there's a watch in effect for coastal areas that may see gusts up to 60 miles an hour. Otherwise sunny today in the mid-30s. Temperatures fall to the mid-20s tonight, and skies stay mostly clear. A slight warm-up to the mid-40s tomorrow, and it'll grow overcast throughout the day. There's a chance of rain beginning around late afternoon. It's 28 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Congressional leaders say they've reached a deal to avert a government shutdown and are now racing to pass it into law in less than two weeks. It's Monday, January 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in the wake of the October 7th attack by Hamas, Israel has loosened gun laws and more of its citizens are buying guns. Everyone is scared and wanting to be able to protect themselves. Also this hour, there's growing criticism of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin for failing to disclose that he was being hospitalized. And officials in Nepal say men there are being misled by recruiters into joining the Russian army in its war against Ukraine. This is a very risky job, and it's very dangerous. They didn't know the reality, you know, what is going on in the field. In sports, Patriots lose, and there are questions about Bill Belichick's future. Sunny and windy today in the 30s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The National Transportation Safety Board says investigators have rather found part of the fuselage that blew off a passenger jet on Friday night. It had just taken off from Portland, Oregon. NPR's Dave Mistich tells us the Alaska Airlines jet safely returned to the airport. NTSB Chair Jennifer Homendy says the plane involved in the incident had a warning light go off on three earlier flights that could have indicated pressurization issues. Alaska Airlines then decided to restrict the aircraft from long flights over water. Homendy says investigators also found the cockpit voice recorder, but that no data could be retrieved. It had been overwritten because it was not recovered within two hours. NPR's Dave Mistich reporting. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin remains hospitalized in the Washington, D.C. area for an undisclosed medical condition. But he didn't tell President Biden about this or Congress or his deputy for several days. Austin released a statement yesterday saying he could have done a better job keeping people informed. While fighting continues in Gaza, Israel is also looking northward to a possible new front in the war, this time against Hamas allies in Lebanon. 
NPR's Lauren Freyer reports there's been an increased volley of rockets and airstrikes across the Israel-Lebanon border in recent days. Israel says Hezbollah rockets hit a sensitive surveillance post in northern Israel and that an anti-tank missile landed in an Israeli border town. That's where Igor Potapov lives and has refused to evacuate. We need to keep our life. We don't go anywhere. We'll stay here and we will be strong. Most of his neighbors have fled south and are staying in hotels paid for by the Israeli government. In response to the Hezbollah strikes, the Israeli military says its fighter jets attacked what it called terrorist infrastructures inside Lebanon. The prospect of all-out war on Israel's northern border is something U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been warning against on a trip to the region. Lauren Fryer, NPR News in northern Israel near the Lebanon border. Russia fired 59 missiles and drones at Ukraine today. Ukrainian officials say that four people were killed. Some of the targets in Ukraine included critical infrastructure and residential areas. Congressional leaders and the White House have made a deal to fund the federal government. NPR's Mara Liason has more. President Biden hailed the deal, saying it will help prevent a needless government shutdown. The deal sticks to the overall funding levels agreed to by the president and former Speaker Kevin McCarthy last year. Far-right Republicans didn't like that deal at all, and it cost McCarthy his job. It's not clear whether the new Speaker, Mike Johnson, will fare any better. The Freedom Caucus calls the deal a total failure and is still demanding deeper spending cuts and new immigration restrictions in exchange for their support. Mara Liason, NPR News. This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Dozens of school districts around the area are closed today or opening late. That's because of yesterday's snowstorm that dumped more than a foot of snow in communities north and west of Boston. The National Weather Service reports more than 12 inches fell in Worcester, Lowell, and Wilmington. At Logan Airport, 12 flights in and out of Boston have been canceled today. FlightAware reports another 30 are delayed. The state reports 5,600 power outages. The biggest number is in Bill Ricca. Governor Healy plans to unveil spending cuts today. Lawmakers tell the Boston Globe $375 million will be cut from state and local programs. Weeks ago, Healy said there would not be any spending cuts. The cuts are due in part to lower-than-projected tax collections. On Beacon Hill, lawmakers are pushing forward a bill that would create a disaster relief fund for Massachusetts farmers. Jill Kaufman reports farmers have experienced drought, freezes, and floods over the last year. Representative Natalie Blay of Deerfield says the bill is a response to the significant natural disasters farmers are experiencing. There's not a lot of federal assistance, Blay says, and these sorts of natural disasters are going to keep happening. And what we heard directly from farmers was that providing them with loans puts them further in the hole. In 2023, $20 million in state aid went to farmers whose crops were damaged or lost. Blaise says that was half of what was needed. We need to have a fund like this in place to ensure that the money is there when they need it. The Massachusetts Agricultural Disaster Relief Fund would be built by donations and public and private grants. 
For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. The 28th annual Moby Dick Marathon is being called a success. Over the weekend, hundreds of volunteers spent more than 24 hours reading the Herman Melville classic out loud. The New Bedford Whaling Museum hosted the event. CEO Amanda McMullen read the ending. On the second day, a sail drew near, nearer, and picked me up at last. It was the devious cruising Rachel that in her retracing search after her missing children only found another orphan. New Bedford's 19th century whaling community inspired the novel Melville lived in the city at that time. It's 8.06. WBUR supporters include the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing stories to illuminate data and trends that shape the world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. The Patriots lost their final game of the season yesterday to the New York Jets. The final in Foxborough was 17-3. to There's no word on whether it was Bill Belichick's final game as head coach. The Celtics will visit the Indiana Pacers tonight. The Bruins will visit the Colorado Avalanche. A high wind watch is in effect through tomorrow for the entire coastline of the state. It'll be sunny today with a high in the mid-30s, clear overnight with temperatures in the 20s, cloudy tomorrow with a rainstorm moving in after sunset. It'll be in the mid-40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. First, we're going to take another look at what prompted federal authorities to ground certain Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft. An Alaska Airlines plane suffered a mid-flight blowout of part of its fuselage last week. It made an emergency landing in Oregon. The few passengers with minor injuries have all been medically cleared. And the head of the National Transportation Safety Board, Jennifer Hamady, says everybody was fortunate as the event could have been more tragic. She confirmed that no one was in the two adjacent seats. For more on this, we've called John Cox. He is a retired airline pilot and now a safety consultant. Good morning. Good morning. So first, would you just help us understand exactly what is this door plug that seems to have given way? It It is a plug that... Uh, in airplanes that airlines order with very large seating capacities can be turned into an emergency exit so that it depends on how the airline orders the airplane from Boeing, whether it's a plug as it was in this case, or whether it's a usable emergency exit if the airplane has more than about 200 passengers in it. Is this is this particular part uh, a, a considered to be, or has it been considered to be, a problem for the integrity of an aircraft in flight? No, this this design has been in use for something over 15 years. Uh, there's another model of the 737 known as the 900ER, and it also has this same sort of arrangement where it can be a plug or an emergency exit door. Uh, 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 some of the other MAX airplanes also have this. So this design has been in use for a number of years, and it's not proven to be problematic at all. So so this, so this what I think I'm hearing you saying, this wasn't a design flaw. So... What happened? Well, that's the question the investigators are looking at. That plug is held in place by 12 what they call stops, and that's what the door actually rests up against, or the plug rests up against. It's held in position by four bolts, 
And the investigators are going to look to see were those four bolts properly installed, was the proper hardware used, all of those things. And we're very fortunate they have found the plug itself. So they'll have both sides to be able to look at to see if there's marks from where the two pieces of metal moved against each other. And the metallurgist will be able to tell us a lot from that. So right now we don't know, we know what happened, we don't know fully why. And then the follow-up question, of course, is what do we need to do to prevent it from happening again? Right now, this still looks like it's a one-off. It's just just something that happened to this airplane. Could you just say, though, a little bit more about how investigators are going to try to figure out, you know, what happened? Because as you, you would imagine, in any situation like this, it's very frightening to people who fly. Oh, absolutely. When, and it's the fact that we don't have all the answers immediately that's also concerning to people. But as... An aircraft investigator for something over 35 years, patience and doing it right, getting all the uh, the evidence gathered and then doing the analysis, that's critical to getting the best answers, and that's what matters. Okay. So they're going to look at where the plug fit in. Was it, uh, did it, does it show the fact that it was scraped? Are all 12 of those stops there? Are the four bolts there? Are the nuts all uh, there? Uh, was there deformation or bending of the bolts or the holes? All of those things they're going to look at to try to understand the forces that resulted in this plug leaving the airplane. Okay, and how big of a problem is this for Boeing? I, I think Boeing has suffered a reputational damage. Uh, this is uh, another case with dealing with a MAX, and I think this so far appears to be a one-off. But an operator around the world is going to look at this and say, okay, if we buy the MAX, are we buying a problem? So uh, I think Boeing has some uh, need to get ahead of this to the degree that they can. That's John Cox. He's a retired airline pilot who is now a safety consultant. Mr. Cox, thanks so much for sharing this expertise with us. My pleasure. The U.S. Supreme Court agreed to decide whether former President Donald Trump should be disqualified from Colorado's presidential primary ballot. Colorado's highest court ruled that the former president was ineligible because a clause in the Constitution blocks people who engage in insurrection from holding office afterward. Our next guest contends that the Supreme Court should not have the final say. He says the Constitution's 14th Amendment, which is the relevant one here, gives Congress the right to grant amnesty or not, so Trump is eligible for the primary ballot. Gerald Magliaca is a law professor at Indiana University. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Steve. Nice to be here. And I'll just mention you're the author of American Founding Son, John Bingham and the Invention of the 14th Amendment, so you've written about this. But I guess we should just emphasize, this is a question of who gets to decide whether the amendment applies. Courts, states, random secretaries of state. Why would you think it's Congress? Well, Congress has the power to give someone an exemption from Section 3 of the 14th Amendment with a two-thirds vote in each house. They can do that at any time. And that means, in part, that it's up to the Supreme Court to decide whether the law applies to Trump, but only the law. And any other reason for giving someone an exemption has to be made by Congress, such as you think it's in the best interest of the country to let someone run in spite of what they've done. Wait a minute. I want to think through what you're telling me here. You're saying that Trump is, in your view, ineligible unless Congress should vote that he should get to run? Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Meaning that 
uh, you're saying that Colorado's Supreme Court was within its rights to decide that what the president, former president, did uh, amounted to an insurrection and that this means the 14th Amendment applies. They get to say that, and only Congress can remove that disability. That's what you're saying. That's correct. And also it means that courts can't look at questions like whether they think disqualification is a good idea or a bad idea. People can have strong views on that, of course, but that's a decision reserved to Congress and a decision that Congress made many times during Reconstruction after the Civil War to decide to give certain people exemptions because they thought that it would be better if they were allowed to serve in office or hold office. Now, let me just push on this a little bit. Uh, I'm looking at the actual text of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. This is a little complicated to discuss on the radio, but there's one of the Constitution's famous passive sentences where they have a passive sentence, so it doesn't say who gets to do something explicitly. No person shall be a senator, representative, etc., etc., or an officer of the United States. The way that you're reading it, it sounds to me like you feel that Colorado Supreme Court or the Secretary of State of Maine or just about anybody could say, I get to decide that someone engaged in insurrection. Is that um, rational? Is it fair? Is it politically wise? Well, first of all, it, it is fair because all of this is subject to judicial review and the Supreme Court is going to exercise that in Donald Trump's case. So that is a safeguard against abuses. The second thing to say is, is it wise? That's not for courts to decide. The Constitution made that determination. The framers of the 14th Amendment made that determination. But they also allowed Congress to make exceptions. So that was the compromise. We're going to have this disqualification, a broad one, but we're going to let Congress make exceptions if necessary. And that's something that Congress can do now if people think that disqualification is bad for the country, or of course there are going to be others who think that disqualification is not bad for the country and they can oppose an amnesty or waiver measure in Congress. I'm curious, having thought this through as you have, if you think it might be politically wise for Congress to act on this and vote on the matter of whether Trump should be uh, allowed to run. I mean, there's a case that even if you feel he engaged in insurrection, that the people should decide. And Congress has lifted the disability on other people, former Confederates in the past. Yes. I mean, I think it's something that should be discussed. I mean, right now there is no legislation pending in Congress to do this. And I think it should be discussed and there should be a, a way for people to weigh in in that fashion, in a way that they can't weigh in directly with the Supreme Court, because, of course, the Supreme Court can't decide legal issues on the basis of sort of polling or popular opinion. You're saying, effectively, this is a political decision. I mean, they're, they're, the law is relevant, but it's a political decision in the end. Well, it's not a political decision for the Supreme Court. They have to focus on legal issues like whether they think January 6th was an insurrection or whether it covers the presidency. And I'm confident that they will do that. But the, the ultimate question of whether Trump should be allowed to run is something that should be left to Congress, especially in the event that the court were to say that he is disqualified. That is, those, those questions about, do you think it's a good idea or not? That has to be left to Congress. Indiana University law professor Gerald Magliaca, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. The first full moon of the year comes later this month, and it has got a name. January is the time of the wolf moon. The Old Farmer's Almanac says it got the nickname because wolves were likely to be heard howling in midwinter. 
But, and I confess I have wondered about this, do wolves really howl at the moon? They don't necessarily howl under the full moon. There's not a mystical element behind it. That's Michelle Mancini with the Wolf Sanctuary of Pennsylvania, and she says the pack may be howling during full moons for other reasons. Being that they're not true nocturnal animals, their eyesight isn't super great at night. It's a little bit better than ours, but it's not super high-powered night vision. So they're more likely to actually succeed at hunting under the light of the full moon when it's bright out, and then they might rally the pack together to come to dinner. Plus, they're winter animals, she says, so they do howl more during the colder seasons simply because they're excited and happy. The lore has Celtic roots, according to Peter Plavchan, a physics and astronomy professor at George Mason University. It was thought to be that if you heard wolves howling during the January full moon, they were hungry, so they got the nickname of the wolf moon. In the tradition of the lunar calendar, each month's full moon has a nickname, like February is the snow moon and June is the strawberry moon. So when the wolf moon rises later this month, you can join the pack in looking skyward. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Monday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the growing criticism of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin for waiting several days to inform the president and members of Congress that he was going to be hospitalized. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Protesters are camping out on a Maui beach to demand Hawaii's governor do more to provide long-term housing for families displaced by fire. It's getting pretty hard. A lot of them are paying mortgages on ash and rubble. Five months after the Maui fires, tourists have returned, but residents are still living in hotels. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Just a reminder for T-Riders, the Green Line remains shut down between North Station and Kenmore Square. That closure extends on the E branch to Heath Street and on the B branch to Babcock Street. The line will reopen this weekend, but then shut down for two more weeks beginning Tuesday. Sunny with a high in the mid-30s today, and there's a high wind watch in effect for coastal areas. Mostly clear and a low in the mid-20s tonight. Tomorrow, increasing clouds and a high in the mid-40s. There's a chance of rain beginning in the late afternoon and lasting through Wednesday morning. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering small ship experiences with a shore excursion included in every port and programs designed for cultural enrichment. 
Learn more at viking.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Since the war in Ukraine began almost two years ago, hundreds of men have moved from Nepal to Russia to join its army. They were drawn by a promise to live in Russia where incomes are much higher. Instead of living in Russia, some feel they're being sent to die for Russia. Reporter Shalu Yadav went to Nepal. Marching towards the front line of a foreign conflict. A group of young Nepali men cheer each other with a war cry in their native language. But the excitement soon turns to horror as one of the injured soldiers in occupied Ukrainian territory tells me. I was sent to the front line twice and it's really scary out there. It's a horrific war. I lost so many of my friends in front of my eyes. I couldn't help them, even as they kept crying for help. The fear in this Nepalese fighter's voice is palpable and he doesn't want to reveal his identity for fear of reprisal by the Russian army. He tells me that Nepali men are being sent to the front line to effectively die. The system is such that after being trained for about 15 days, foreigners like us who join the Russian army are sent to the front line to fight. Local army men are not sent up there. We were accompanied by a few former convicts. He and his friends decided to go to Russia last year after they heard President Vladimir Putin had offered to fast-track citizenship for foreigners who serve a year in the Russian army. But what the offer did not include, he says, was equal treatment and dignity. I feel that the Russian government doesn't value the lives of foreign soldiers at all. For one Nepali that dies in the war, they can raise another 10. Poverty is pushing people from different countries to join the Russian army, and they're hiring as many as they can. He's lucky to have survived the war so far. Back home in Nepal, Many families have not heard from their sons and husbands for months. An hour's drive from the tourist town of Pokhara in central Nepal, we arrive in Shinja district to meet the family of Pritam Karki. They received a letter from the Nepali embassy in Moscow last month, which confirmed their worst fear. This is the last voice message Rima Karki received from her husband, Pritam, in November last year. He told her that things were risky on the front line, but he's not there, so it's all good. In a year's time, we will have citizenship and you can move here with me, Pritam reassured Rima. He died a few hours later. Rima is hurt, not only because she lost her husband, but also because Pritam hid the fact that he was on the front line of the Russia-Ukraine war. I didn't know much about the situation in Russia. He never told me stories of war, never told me about the hardships he faced there. He used to say he's safe there. A seasoned soldier, 40-year-old Pritam had served in the Nepali army for 16 years before he went to Afghanistan to work as a security guard in 2020. When he returned home three years later, 
Nepal was in the midst of an economic crisis as inflation surged and tourism plunged. There was no opportunity for him. So he paid a local agent in Kathmandu to get him to Russia. This wrote, his mother Indra Kumari says, her son only told the family that he was going to renew his visa for Afghanistan. He called us after landing in Russia to say he's there for a new job. If we had known the reality, we would have begged or done everything in our power to rescue him from there. The family blames local recruiters for duping Pritam. And he was not the only one who fell into the trap. Police say many joinees were told by the recruiters that they would be hired only as helpers and not fighters in the Russian army. Most of them, they paid $7,000, $8,000, being based on their bargain power. Some of them, they paid $12,000. Bhupendra Khatri is the senior superintendent of police in Kathmandu. His team arrested 17 recruiters last month and accused them of extortion of money and illegally sending people to Russia via Dubai and India. This is very risky job and it's very dangerous. They didn't know the reality, you know, what is going on in the film. Uh, most of the people, they died, you know, by bombarding, you know, concerts. Um, this is the reality, you know. Nepal says at least 400 of its citizens are fighting for Russia. Speaking to NPR, Foreign Minister Narayan Sodh appealed to Moscow to let his countrymen go home. We don't have any treaty with uh, Russia and we don't want to uh, fight the war on behalf of Russia. We believe in peace and we believe in UN uh, Charter also. So we have uh, requested them to release our poor people. NPR also contacted the Russian embassy in Kathmandu for a response to Nepal's request and other allegations made by joinees and their families. But we didn't get an answer. Please help me. I'm trapped here. The Nepalese fighter pleads as he's petrified at the possibility of being sent to the front line again. A realization in the end that life is too precious to be put on the line for money. For NPR News, I'm Shalu Yadav in Nepal. Later today on All Things Considered, the Michigan Wolverines are in college football's national championship tonight. And if you're watching, you may witness a curious ritual. If they cause the Washington Huskies to turn the ball over, out come the buffs. The player credited with the turnover dons a pair of expensive designer shades. You may know them as Cartier C-Decor white buffalo horn sunglasses, but Detroiters just call them white buffs. Listen on your radio, your phone, or wherever you go for NPR. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on WBOR's Morning Edition. Oppenheimer dominated the 81st Golden Globes yesterday, taking home five awards. 
Dorchester native actor Ioa Debery also won for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy TV Series for her role on The Bear. It's 829. Tomorrow night, Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her State of the City address. Last year, she laid out goals for growing Boston's population and controlling soaring housing costs. Listen live at 7 tomorrow on 90.9 WBUR as she looks back and lays out her vision for the year ahead. WBUR supporters include Explo, where curiosity fuels discovery. Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org summer. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on a trip to the Middle East. NPR's Lauren Frere reports Blinken is meeting with leaders in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and will later hold talks with Israeli officials in Tel Aviv. When he lands here in Israel, he's expected to push Israeli leaders to curtail their widespread bombing of Gaza. And there are actually signs that that may already be happening. The Israeli defense minister has said with the withdrawal of thousands of Israeli troops from northern Gaza, the military is refocusing on more targeted special ops missions there. That's NPR's Lauren Prayer reporting. President Biden will take his re-election campaign to South Carolina today. The president will visit a church in Charleston, the site of one of the nation's most horrific hate crimes. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen has more. The president is visiting Mother Emanuel Amy Church in Charleston, where nine black parishioners were murdered by a white supremacist in 2015. There, he'll talk about what's at stake this election and appeal to black voters who helped secure his bid in 2020. South Carolina's Democratic presidential primary is February 3rd. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen reporting. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Senator Elizabeth Warren is not backing efforts to remove former President Donald Trump from election ballots. Officials in Colorado and Maine ruled Trump cannot appear on the 2024 ballot because of his role in the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. An effort began last week in Massachusetts to do that as well. Warren told WCVBs on the record she wants the decision to be left to voters. I get it. Uh, I think it's pretty uh, uh, clear that Donald Trump participated in an insurrection. But I want to beat him at the ballot box. Trump and his allies are challenging the decisions in Colorado and Maine. Harvard faculty are asking for a full investigation into plagiarism allegations in the work of Claudine Gay. Gay resigned as president of the university last week amid those allegations. Professors tell the Boston Globe the university-led review of her work was inadequate. Harvard has not publicly published findings of that review. The Old North Church in Boston is in the process of restoring an 18th-century bust of George Washington. Appraisers say the bust is in good shape but needs to be cleaned to be enjoyed for years to come. It's 8.32. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. 
Patriots head coach Bill Belichick is not shedding any new light on his future. He held a press conference this morning, and all he'd say is that he's still under contract for another year. Today was kind of the wrap-up day for us with the players. Um, we'll have a meeting with them and and, uh, and then go from there. So as far as any you know decisions or direction or anything like that for next year is you know, way too early for that. The Patriots ended their season yesterday with a 17-3 loss to the New York Jets in Foxborough. New England finished the season with a 4-13 record. The Bruins will be in Denver tonight to skate with the Colorado Avalanche. The Celtics are on the road to take on the Indiana Pacers. Clear skies today. Highs will be in the mid-30s. It'll be windy and there's a high wind watch in effect for coastal areas. Skies stay mostly clear tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-20s. Clouds move in throughout the day tomorrow and there's a chance of rain beginning in the late afternoon. Highs will be in the mid-40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin remains at Walter Reed Hospital today. That's a week after he was admitted for complications from what we were told was a recent elective medical procedure. What's unusual here is not that Austin is in the hospital, that happens, but that Austin kept his hospitalization quiet from the White House and members of Congress for days. NPR's Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman is with us now to tell us more about this strange situation. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Michelle. Well, you know, it is strange. I'm sorry. I know that most people, you know, don't feel a need to tell all their personal business when they go into the hospital, but he is a member of the cabinet, and we know he's still in the hospital. Do we know how he's doing? Well, we really don't know his condition, the initial medical procedure, or the resulting complications. He was in the intensive care unit, uh, Michelle, so clearly it was serious, but I'm told by a source, not life-threatening. The Pentagon put out a statement yesterday afternoon saying the secretary is, quote, recovering well and in good spirits, and he resumed his duties Friday night, but no word on a release date. Can you walk us through this whole story about who knew what when. I'm talking about officials in Washington here. Well, the Pentagon put out a brief release Friday afternoon, the 5th, saying on New Year's night, January 1st, Austin was admitted to the hospital. We were later told his deputy, Kathleen Hicks, was informed the next day that she was the acting secretary. Now, Hicks was on vacation in Puerto Rico and was told a couple of days later on Thursday that Austin was, in fact, in the hospital. She offered to head home, but was told, listen, Austin would resume duties on Friday. Also on Thursday, the White House was finally informed Austin was in the hospital, and some members of Congress were only told, get this, a half hour before the press release was issued on Friday afternoon. Now, Austin himself has released a statement saying, quote, I could have done a better job ensuring the public was appropriately informed. Okay, the public, but what about his boss, the president? Well, right. You would think that Biden's principal military advisor in this time of war in the Middle East and 
possible continued military action by U.S. forces against militant groups in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen would have picked up the phone and told officials, at least the president, because there have been ongoing meetings about all these issues. You know, did anyone notice he was not around? Now, Biden spoke with Austin over the weekend, and we're told he has confidence in the secretary, but members of Congress, both Democrat and Republican, still want answers. The top leaders of the House Armed Services Committee, Republican Mike Rogers and Democrat Adam Smith, put out a statement yesterday. They said several questions remain unanswered. What was the medical procedure and resulting complications? What is the secretary's current health status? How and when the delegation of the secretary's responsibilities were made and the reason for the delay in notification to the president and Congress. So, Tom, I'm going to mention there, you've covered the Pentagon for a long time. Have you ever seen anything like this? Absolutely. No, never anything like this. But Austin, who's 70 years old, he's always been very quiet, not very talkative, rarely seen in public or the press room. And he was in the same way when he was a four-star general, when he was in charge of operations in the Middle East. He's not a force or clearly a power broker like his predecessors, Donald Rumsfeld or Robert Gates or Leon Panetta. He's frankly just kind of a silent partner. That is NPR's Pentagon correspondent, Tom Bowman. Tom, thank you. You're welcome. Of course, one of the crises around the world in which Austin has had a say or been involved is the war between Israel and Hamas which we'll talk about next. Since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, Israelis have been arming themselves in large numbers. Some in the government encourage this. Some Israelis ask what people may do with those guns in times to come. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports from Tel Aviv. With an assault rifle slung over one shoulder, 24-year-old Amitai Turkel strolls along Tel Aviv's waterfront holding hands with his wife, Oriya. How does it feel to walk along a beautiful beach with a huge gun like that? Isn't it weird? It's a bit heavy, so you're always uncomfortable. But it's also, a, I think it's a service to the public because in a case that something happened, I know that I have the equipment to run and help whoever needs it. I want to say I feel more safe. I feel more comfortable. Yes. <laughs> Before October 7th, anyone with a gun was usually in the military and a common sight in Israel. But guns are now even more ubiquitous as the Israeli government has moved to loosen the rules around gun ownership by fast-tracking the permitting process. We've definitely seen an increase in requests, for sure, since October 7th. Everyone is scared and wanting to be able to protect themselves. That's Jonah Mink, a physician in Tel Aviv. This Israeli-American family doctor says it's a lot tougher for civilians to get a gun in Israel than it is in the U.S., you need to have completed mandatory military service for one, and you need a doctor's physical and mental health clearance. Here it's really, really strict. The process is annoying, it's long, it takes a while. There's multiple layers of bureaucratic review. Israel's National Security Ministry says it has received more than 260,000 firearm permit requests since October 7th and is approving up to 3,000 a day compared with 100 approvals a day before the attack. A recent video shows National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir urging people to take up arms. The controversial far-right politician has been convicted of inciting anti-Arab racism. 
My message to the public is arm yourselves. It saves lives, he says, standing with Orthodox Jews around a crate of assault rifles. Last month, when two Palestinians opened fire, killing three people at a Jerusalem bus stop, an armed civilian took down the shooters with his own gun. He was then killed by an Israeli soldier who mistook him for one of the attackers. The soldier boasted about the kill in a TV interview before he knew he had shot a fellow Jew. I was just lucky to be in the right place, he said. Every soldier wants to tick that box. Rabbi Noah Satat is executive director of the Association for Civil Rights in Israel. These are the kinds of tragic accidents that happen. So it's a false sense of safety. She says clashes between Arabs and Jews that are still mostly fought using fists, knives, and stones could take a catastrophic turn with guns. If those kinds of conflicts are weaponized, it could be a disaster. Amir Ahmad Badran is one of the few Arab members of the Tel Aviv Jaffa Municipal Council. He says nothing good will come from arming Israelis. And this is something we fear, not only as Arabs, but as a society, as a civil society. Because, you know, these guns soon will be turned upon us. Me as an Arab, you as a Jew, and us as a community. Badran says when this war is over, those same guns will wreak havoc in homes and communities in a traumatized society. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at California's historic investment in healthcare. This year, all low-income, undocumented immigrants are eligible for coverage, costing the state an additional $2.6 billion annually. Mid-30s and sunny today, it'll be windy and there's a high wind watch in effect for coastal areas that may see gusts up to 60 miles per hour. Mid-20s tonight and skies will be mostly clear. Tomorrow it grows increasingly overcast, leading to a chance of rain beginning around late afternoon. Temperatures will be in the mid-40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib & Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. HabibARCH.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Massachusetts employers closed out 2023 feeling more optimistic about the economy. That's according to the latest Business Confidence Index released today by the Associated Industries of Massachusetts. W.B. Warson and Jor M. Wameka reports. The index was slightly down compared to December 2022, but it was the highest it's been in nine months. The boost comes as interest rates have leveled off and cuts are expected this year. Christopher Guerin of Associated Industries of Massachusetts says employers feel the economy will reach a soft landing. The economy is in general returning to a more predictable pattern than what we saw post-pandemic. And predictability is what employers really are looking for. And so they're feeling pretty good about their company prospects. Garen says employers expect to hire more people. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zanindor and Wameka. 
Boston planning leaders are looking for a firm to develop affordable housing on a site in Roxbury that's now mostly parking lots. The site is at Harrison Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. It's land owned by the city's Water and Sewer Commission. Documents reviewed by the Boston Business Journal show planners hope the housing will focus on families and seniors. It's 845. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Feldman Geospatial committed to helping Boston build right from the ground up since 1946, and working to build community with Jazz Night, presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com Boston. On Monday morning, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Controversies and scandal, those were the backstories leading into Hollywood's first post-strike red carpet extravaganza last night. We're talking about the 81st Golden Globes, where the big awards went to many of the season's critical darlings in TV and film. And the Golden Globe goes to... The Bear! And the Golden Globe goes to... Succession! And the Golden Globe goes to Oppenheimer! NPR senior culture editor Bilal Qureshi is with us to talk about the return of the Globes. Bilal, thank you for staying up because you know I didn't. (laughs) Thank you, Michelle. Yes, I I did have the distinct pleasure of staying up and watching. (laughs) Well, was it though? And you're going to tell us about that. All right, let me just set the table. Just to remind people, this is the first big test of uh, what I guess we'll call the Golden Globes brand. After being essentially canceled for problems with inclusion and corruption, which were exposed by the Los Angeles Times, but now revamped, redesigned, moved to CBS. So was last night a successful reboot. I mean, as for the awards, let's talk, honestly say that was that's up in the air. I think the much larger celebrity ecosystem that powers award season, shiny actors, couture, social media discourse, memes, that was all definitely back following the long strike in Hollywood last summer. And after a banner year for the box office, this was the first time that since the strike, many of the casts, including from movies like Barbie and Killers of the Flower Moon, walked the red carpets together. So I think audience excitement and celebrity shininess clearly drove a lot more attention to the Globes than they may have deserved. Uh, the show itself was kind of a snooze and uh, and the host was a bit of a misfire. So Ooh, we, can, we can get into that. I definitely want to get into that. But before that, talk, talk about the winners. For the TV side, the night belonged to the final season of Succession, season two of The Bear. And um, in the always competitive limited series category, that went to Netflix's Beef. Uh, on the movie side, the holdover stars Divine Joy Randolph and Paul Giamatti picked up two of the big acting awards. Um, in Oppenheimer, there were acting awards as well for Robert Downey Jr. and Killian Murphy. Um, and native actress Lily Gladstone won for her lead performance in Killers of the Flower Moon. And here's some of her really in- incredible speech, which she began in the Blackfeet language. In this business, um, native actors used to speak their lines in English, and then the sound mixers would run them backwards to accomplish native languages on camera. This is an historic win. And that was a good kind of a story, Gwen. I mean, another big moment here was a new category that the Globes introduced for best cinematic and box office achievement, basically for films that made more than $100 million. And uh, that's why Taylor Swift was in the audience, because her Arrows tour film was nominated. Uh, but that rather capitalist version of Best Picture uh, ultimately went to Barbie. Okay, speaking of Barbie, is there a sense that this is a preview of the upcoming Oscars race? 
You know, the Globes have always been, Michelle, a kind of somewhat unreliable bellwether for what's going to happen in the Oscars race, which is about to begin with the nominations very soon. Um, but that's definitely one of the biggest questions of the awards season. Is this all going to be a replay of Barbenheimer's summer? But Oppenheimer really dominated the awards. It won, you know, acting awards, the, the directing prize, and the big sort of movie prize of the night. Okay, but you sound like you didn't love it, Bilal. So sound like you're a little down on it. So why don't you just tell us a little bit more. I think the jokes were just off. I think the a lot of the audience, which is meant to be visible, was not really responding well. So I think, you know, an uneventful relaunch for the Globes. All right. That is NPR's Bilal Qureshi. Bilal, thank you. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll tell us more about the first private U.S. mission to the moon, plus an interview with the first female commercial pilot in Afghanistan. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm. Your family matters to their family law attorneys. Learn more at davismalm.com. D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. What does it mean to be Taiwanese? Different generations can have different answers, influenced by the island's complicated history with China. That conversation on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Congressional leaders say they've reached a bipartisan deal to keep the government funded through the end of June. In Lebanon, officials say an Israeli airstrike killed a high-ranking Hezbollah leader near the border there. And a number of airlines have grounded their Boeing 737 MAX planes for inspections after an incident Friday on an Alaska Airlines flight. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage. With Trouble in Mind, Alice Childress's moving backstage look at identity and stereotypes of 1950s Broadway. LyricStage.com. Sunny in mid-30s today. It'll be windy and the state's coastal areas are under a high wind watch. Mostly clear in mid-20s tonight. Increasingly cloudy tomorrow in the mid-40s. There's a chance of showers beginning in the late afternoon. It's 28 degrees in Boston. A closer look at what needs to happen before interest rate cuts. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses with customizable coverage options as unique as your business. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to put AI to work. UiPath.com slash Marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. From Marketplace, I'm Novasavo, in for David Brancaccio. Many on Wall Street expect the Federal Reserve to start cutting interest rates in March. But Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin told Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genzer that a lot is riding on these first few months of the year. 
In a speech on Friday before the Maryland Bankers Association, Richmond Fed President Barkin outlined a number of risks to a soft landing, like if consumers and businesses pull way back on spending or if there's a shock to the economy. After the speech, Barkin told me there's also the problem of businesses that got used to the era of rising prices and want to keep charging more. They're open to the notion that that era is over, but they're not just going to give it up without having to prove that. So they're trying. And I think this first quarter will be a very important quarter in this. You know, a lot of these price increases happen at the first of the year. Barkin says those price hikes may not stick if customers refuse to pay them or if competitors start charging less. If customers and competitors react in ways that mean these price increases aren't effective, then I think this era will be through and we'll get to the kind of stability that certainly I want to get to. But we'll see. Barkin says the owner of a chain of gyms told him he's raising his fees 9 percent. Barkin will talk to him again in three weeks to see if new members are willing to pay his weighty prices. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. There's a new budget deal in Washington. The amount of proposed spending, about $1.6 to $1.7 trillion, depending on how you do the math. That's essentially at the same levels as the previous deal, which cost Kevin McCarthy his House speakership. Congress has two weeks to pass the underlying bills and avoid a partial government shutdown. Let's do the numbers. Well, Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are pointing to a mixed open. Boeing shares are set to open down about 7 and 2 tenths percent. As investigators try to figure out why a piece of fuselage in a 737 MAX 9 jet blew off during flight on Friday. Similar jets are now grounded. On to Las Vegas, where CES, formerly called the Consumer Electronics Show, starts tomorrow. Marketplace's Lily Jamali has a preview. For two years, Americans spent less on consumer electronic technology, but the Consumer Technology Association forecasts that will change in 2024. Spending is set to grow by 2.8% to $512 billion. Small startups and tech giants alike will be presenting in hopes of attracting some of that spending, says Gary Shapiro, president and CEO of the Consumer Technology Association, which runs CES. Well, you know, we have 4,000 plus exhibitors in 2.5 million net square feet of exhibit space. It's the biggest international event in terms of having people come to the U.S. of any, including sporting events. At this year's show, expect talk of AI in pretty much everything. Chipmakers will show off processing power that lets users run AI apps on their computers, which are more secure than the cloud. Also on tap, AI in kitchen appliances like Samsung's smart refrigerator and the voice-controlled bidet seat that connects to your smart speaker. You know, just what consumers have been clamoring for. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Odoo, provider of an all-in-one management platform with a suite of fully integrated applications designed to simplify and connect every aspect of business in one software. More at odoo.com. And by Magoosh, online test prep for GRE, GMAT, SAT, ACT, and more. From self-paced to live courses, Magoosh offers many ways to prep smart at magoosh.com. And by C3 Generative AI, verified traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. Many undocumented immigrants in California are now eligible for the state's version of Medicaid. The change is expected to cost $2.5 billion a year, but it could save money, too. Marketplace's Elizabeth Troval explains. 
For a decade, Jonathan Mejia with St. John's Community Health has been sitting down with low-income immigrants in Southern California, many undocumented, to help them pay for health care. You would definitely have to explain how the programs work, what the programs require. They're very fearful of enrolling or applying into these programs due to immigration statuses. In the new year, those conversations got easier now that all low-income undocumented immigrants in the state are eligible for health care coverage. Now we let them know it's an insurance, so they are able to see a lot more um, specialists, a lot more providers. If they're diabetic, they can go ahead and see different types of diabetic specialists at no cost. His network of clinics has signed up 13,000 existing patients for the newly available insurance. And hundreds more who haven't been served by these clinics before are now coming through the doors. Julia Gillat with the Migration Policy Institute says it's a notable expansion. We have seen other states start to move in this direction, but in most states, people who don't have legal status aren't eligible for public health insurance. The expansion adds to the $37 billion Medi-Cal program. Some of that expense may bring savings elsewhere, says Stanford's Adrian Sabatee. She studied health care costs among undocumented people in New York City with chronic conditions. Quite a few of these individuals um, used actually the emergency department setting for things that could be treated in the primary care context. To test the impact of primary care, they set people up with doctor's appointments. As a result, fewer people needed to go to the emergency room and were able to save about $500 in emergency department charges. Which makes sense. On average, emergency care is uh, more expensive than preventative treatment. Drishti Palai is with health policy research group KFF. She says researchers have found immigrants actually pay more into the healthcare system than they get out of it. Whereas for um, U.S. citizens, uh, the amount that they spend on taxes and on health insurance premiums is less on average than the health care that they, that they utilize. In other words, immigrants, undocumented immigrants in particular, subsidize health care for the U.S. born. I'm Elizabeth Troval for Marketplace. And I'm Nova Safo with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Listen live at 7 tomorrow night as Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her second State of the City address. We'll have coverage and analysis. A windy day today, and there's a watch in effect for coastal areas that may see gusts up to 60 miles an hour. Otherwise sunny today in the mid-30s. Temperatures fall to the mid-20s tonight and skies stay mostly clear. A slight warm-up to the mid-40s tomorrow, and it'll grow overcast throughout the day. There's a chance of rain beginning around late afternoon. It's 28 degrees in Boston, and the BBC NewsHour is coming up next. I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR. Boston's NPR news station.